Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. If you hear thunder in the background, I don't think it's nature saying anything about the podcast. It's just the timing of when we record it. We're in the middle of a thunderstorm. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn with my colleagues, Layla Tassi Jen Cahoon, and our chief political writer, Seth Richardson, who's here to talk about the governor's race and the Cleveland mayor's race. Let's get right to it. Who will challenge Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley for the Democratic nomination for Ohio governor in 2022? Seth Richardson, we will have a primary, it appears. Yeah, it was probably the uh, worst kept secret in Ohio politics that this was happening since uh, Cincinnati Mayor John Cranley said, you know, basically more than a year and a half ago, he was going to he was at least thinking about running for the race. And he's been raising money and everything. But it does set up kind of an interesting primary with, uh, you know, Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley, kind of a battle of mayors for the uh, nomination. Those two are also friends. Um, But it's going to be interesting to see how primary voters react, Democratic primary voters react, because there's always this question in democratic politics about, you know, quote unquote electability and whatnot. But uh, I, I think for, for, I, I think right now it's pretty easy to look at um, Whaley as kind of the front runner. She's been gathering a lot of endorsements and getting a lot of support and raising a lot of money, frankly, too. Um, and it, the, the timing of Cranley's decision was also a little curious to me, um, I, I, considering that everybody kind of knew he was running. I, I don't know why he waited so long, but yes, there will be a primary. Well, the the interesting thing is, is when Whaley announced she was running, you had a lot of Democratic forces immediately endorse her. So so she's got a whole lot of backing already that Cranley doesn't have. And I doubt people will peel off. People like her a good deal. Um, so it's odd. It's the timing is odd. If he was going to run hard, you would have thought he would have announced in February because he's been like you said, he's been telling everybody I'm running. He's been talking about his platform and he just says, well, I haven't made it official yet. But while he hasn't made it official, she's been running around collecting donations and, and endorsements. So it's I know it's early to handicap it, but do you think he can overcome her early start? I think it's going to be pretty hard just because she did have that, you know, essentially she announced in April. So she's got a three, four month head start on Cranley as far as being officially quote unquote in the governor's race. And I think there's a certain amount of celebrity of sorts that comes with, you know, Nan Whaley. She's dealt with a lot of really high profile issues down there in Dayton. You know, obviously the, you know, tragic shooting probably being the, um, the most uh, widely known one, but uh, she, she's kind of been the face of Dayton for a while through quite a few trials and you know tribulations down there. And I, I think you're going, I, I don't think that the, the gender question can be ignored either, where you have, you know, women really being a driving force in the Democratic Party and wanting to see a woman nominee. That was, that was true even in 2018. There was a pretty significant uh, sector of the Democratic Party that really wanted to get behind Betty Sutton and try running a woman 
against Mike DeWine. I think now that you have um, someone like Whaley who has national profile, who's got, you know, Democratic bona fides, who, you know, it also doesn't hurt that she's, you know, connected to Sherrod Brown, really the only Democrat who's had any success statewide. It, it, it is hard for me to see where the um, where the support comes from for Cranley. Does that mean he can't do it? Anything can happen in elections. So, you know, never say never. But I think right now um, I, I would probably consider Whaley the front runner. It, it's all really going to depend on if Cranley is able to, you know, raise some money. And I, I don't know that he has necessarily the fundraising network well, that Whaley has either. Well, let me ask you this. The, the, neither of them, I would say, has name recognition throughout the state. But you do get the feeling more people in places like Northeast Ohio are aware of Nan Whaley than they are John Cranley. I bet you if you walk down the street in Cleveland and ask 100 people who's the mayor of Cincinnati, no one would know. Whereas you might get some people that know about Nan Whaley. Is name recognition for a couple of fairly obscure Ohio mayors, a problem in taking on somebody like Mike DeWine, no matter who wins the primary? Oh, oh, definitely. I, I don't think I don't think anybody thinks that the Democratic bench is deep, that there is some, you know, overwhelming superstar clear choice. But I think when you look at the choices that are there, um, you know, Whaley makes a lot of sense for Democrats because she does have some, you know, a little more national profile where she can bring in some donors. She is, you know, she's going to be just a different candidate of sorts, right? She's not, uh, you know, frankly, she's not a white guy, which is what the Democrats have been running for years and where, where you have a, you have a significant part of the Democratic Party that wants to change that up because the drivers of the Democratic Party are generally speaking uh, women and minority voters. All right. Now, so so do you expect they'll go at each other or do you think they'll do what the Senate candidates are doing and attack Mike DeWine? I think you're going to see them generally attacking Mike DeWine. I think that a lot of where the because they're friends, they are very good friends. And I think where the sniping is probably going to come in is more in the um, the periphery kind of organizations. Right. So maybe some. Uh, union sniping against a candidate. Emily's list already came out and, uh, you know, is kind of attacking John Cranley because he's considered kind of an anti-abortion Democrat, which you know seems like a non-starter in a primary. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, just other organizations that are probably going to take um, that kind of, you know, mantle because I don't think that Democrats want to see a primary that looks like the Senate Republican primary where, Generally, everybody agrees that it's a, a pretty big mess right now, even, you know, when I'm talking with Republicans. And I don't think Democrats want to convey that message when they're trying to take on. Democrats. OK, so so this is the paranoid conspiracy part of my brain. But is there a chance they're doing this just to have the primary so that they're getting a lot of messages before the voters? If you didn't have a Democratic primary next year and it looks like we're going to have a Republican primary the Democrats wouldn't have a lot of traction, but if they're on the primary ballot and both candidates are using their their money to attack Mike DeWine, is that really the focus? Let's let's make Mike DeWine weaker 
for the Democrat that runs against him? Or are they not that organized? I, ability, I, I think you, think you are giving the Democratic Party in Ohio <laughs> way too much credit if you think they've got some grand scheme where they're going to take down Mike DeWine by engineering this kind of primary. No, I, I, I do not think that is the okay. case at all. When, I, when I'm talking with Democrats, actually, a lot of people say that, you know, Cranley could, could potentially be a good statewide candidate. They just want to see him go for something like, you know, attorney general or something like that. He can rest on the, uh, you know, founding the innocence project and take on Dave Yost or auditor or something like that. They want to see, they, they do like the idea of him on the ticket. It's just that they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily warm to the idea of him, you know, being in this gubernatorial well, primary, especially when they don't really have any down ballot candidates right now. Well, maybe they'll pull a John Houston and he'll become her Lieutenant governor candidate. We'll have to see. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What are Cuyahoga County officials doing to battle the very low vaccination rate among inmates at the county jail? Leila Tassi, early on in the pandemic, they were having some success in getting the inmates vaccinated, but that's completely fallen apart, it appears. Yeah, that's right. You know, earlier in the pandemic, they had a steady stream of inmates who were seeking the vaccination. There were about 80 per week got the shot. Now that number is down to about 20 to 40. As of yesterday, only 557 inmates out of the population of 1642 had, had been vaccinated. So this is what the county plans to do. They would like to offer jail inmates free phone calls, video visits, and commissary items in exchange for getting the shot. So it's this incentive package that's valued at about $50, and they would be able to choose from all those amenities, or they could get a bag of popular items from the jail commissary, such as Oreos and ramen noodles and honey buns and chips. And uh, so the Board of Control, which approves contracts up to $500,000, signed off on this commissary package during a, a meeting Monday. And the cost for the phone calls and remote video visits have, have yet to be negotiated and finalized, but the commissary portion is set at no more than 230000 So from Vaximillion to Vaxacommissary, I guess. <laughs> well, I, I will be fascinated to see if basically 50 bucks of, of stuff persuades inmates to to get vaccinated i what, what's not clear is are they not getting vaccinated because they're they're you know down the facebook rabbit hole of of nonsense and against it or is it just they haven't gotten around to it and it'll be interesting to see if this works it's you know credit the county for trying to do something because the jail everybody's in close quarters you know if the delta variant gets in there it's going to sweep through the place in about three minutes so trying to stop that is a good idea. It'll be interesting to see if 50 bucks does it. Um, sure. And, it, it, you know, so and at the cost of, you know, $500,000, it should cover incentives for up to 3,000 inmates through the end of 2021. So I would say that that's, that's not a bad return for the, for the cost. Another thing they could do, of course, is reduce the number of people in the jail, as they did at the beginning of the pandemic. There There's are an awful lot of people there again. And uh, I get that a high percentage of them are violent, so you don't want to let them go. But these but, are also people who are returning to society at some point. And to send them back into the world with a vaccination is, is a good good public policy, yeah. I think. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a good effort. I, it, we'll see if it works. You're listening to This Week in this CLE. How does U.S. Senator Rob Portman of Ohio think the big infrastructure bill that he helped negotiate will play out today and in the coming days? Jane Cahoon, Rob Portman really did a good thing here. He, he worked across the aisle to try and get this deal done to invest in America. 
What did he tell us yesterday when we asked for his predictions? Well, this is a big day. It's up for a vote this morning, and he hopes that it passes so he can finally come back to Ohio. Portman told Sabrina Eaton in an interview that he he wants to attend a, a ceremony on Wednesday renaming NASA's Plumbrook facility uh, that after Neil Armstrong, and, and that's another bill that he had sponsored, so he really wants to be there for that. But he, yeah, you're right. I mean, he... Portman said the last three weeks he spent in Washington without returning to Ohio so he could iron out all these last minute problems with the bill. He said it's the longest stretch he's, he spent without returning to the state during decades in Congress and when he was a, a cabinet secretary. Uh, but anyway, he's been at this for about four months, putting in all kinds of long hours, often past midnight. But back to the bill's fate, as you asked about. Um, Portman thinks it's going to get support from maybe 19 or 20 Senate Republicans, as well as the Democrats, of course. And then uh, assuming that happens today, then it's going to go to the House where he thinks it's also going to get some significant Republican su support. That would be in spite of former President Donald Trump's attempts to whip up uh, Republican opposition to it by by warning them that, you know, this is going to be a big victory for Democrats and it's going to be used against Republicans in the upcoming elections. But, you know, Portman's really banking on the the, the popularity of this with the with the general public is is overwhelming. Um, he said he did have a single conversation with Trump where he urged him to support it, you know, on the grounds that it's consistent with what Trump advocated when he was in, in the White House. But um, well, think I, about that, though. Think about that. You have the former president rallying people against something that is pretty much a universal good solely for, you know, very bald face election purposes. I, you know, don't vote for this because it'll help Democrats. Forget the people it'll help. Forget the employment it'll create. Forget that it's investing in America. We don't want Democrats to be able to use it. That is every that says everything about what's wrong in Washington and good for Rob Portman for rejecting that kind of nonsense, working with Democrats and Republicans to get it done. I hope he's right. I hope it gets the support it needs and it might show that the power of Donald Trump actually is waning. It certainly should. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Okay, this will be a little bit longer conversation. What did we learn after interviewing most of the candidates for Cleveland mayor for special episodes of this podcast? Seth Richardson, last week was a hard week. We did six 45-minute interviews with these candidates, some of whom really did not want to answer the questions. What is your general takeaway? And then let's go through them. Yeah, I think it was pretty clear that uh, some people came a lot more prepared than others. I, I would urge everybody to go listen to all of the episodes. You get a really good kind of insight into just the, you know, one, the mindset and two, how how good these candidates are on their feet. Um, so some of the takeaways I had, I mean, I think everybody's going to be able to hear in the episodes themselves. Um, you know, one, it, it just Zachary didn't really seem like he wanted to answer our questions, you know, try as we might. Um, he just didn't really want to come with any specifics. Well, he had a kind of stump speech prepared, but there, you know, anytime you do some follow up, it, it just didn't seem well, to really answer it. Yeah. I mean, it, what was annoying about that one, that was the most annoying one of these because he wanted to just orate, you know, and, and I drove down Kinsman and saw stores and he just go on and on. My, the worst moment was when you asked him, 
what will you do about broadband? And he spent two minutes talking about how we now know broadband is vital. And it's like the whole question was predicated on that. What are you going to do? And we never we never did get an answer. I do think this format, unlike uh, a forum or a debate or even our editorial board interview, really does give somebody who puts in the time to listen a very clear idea who these people are, what they stand for, if they stand for anything, and how much energy and ideas they have. Um, what about Kevin Kelly? He was the second one we published. Yeah, I thought Kevin Kelly came, you know, very prepared. He had, you know, very clear answers to all the follow-ups. He had a plan that he outlined. I think he he obviously showed that he has done some preparation for this, which is not surprising, right? I mean, he's been on council for close to a decade now. He's been um you know, the council president for, uh, I'm not sure exactly how many years, I think seven years, six years, seven years. And, um, you know, he, he obviously came, you know, prepared, he was ready for follow-ups, even, you know, some of the curveballs we might've thrown at him there, there didn't seem to be any, uh, uh, dodges. So yeah. to speak. he directly answered everything, which is, you know, frankly, what we were looking for in all this, I think, at least what I was looking for in all this was, yeah, you know, we had the, this outline of questions that we were working on with these, you know, specific topics, but a lot of what can be gleaned is in the follow-ups where, yeah, you know, you hear the, you know, the quick stump, the talking point, but when you kind of ask about some of the nitty gritty and the details, who actually has those details? And I, you know, I think Kelly was definitely one well, of those candidates. And it's also how quick they are on their feet. It's, I mean, we asked the issue question and yes, you got some rhetoric and some talking points, but as you drilled in and I agree with you, Kelly was one of the more prepared um, and, and had, and was nimble, had some good answers. Sandra Williams was next. It, it that one was a little unusual because it felt a little bit like she was reading answers at some points. Definitely a little bit. She, I, I thought she started off pretty strongly. She, you know, especially on the crime question, right. Her background, you know, makes a lot of sense that she would know quite a bit about that. She was able to discuss it in really intricate detail, but you know, as we kind of went along and started asking about, uh, you know, the Cleveland public power, especially that seemed to fluster her a little bit, uh, you know, even broadband to an extent. And um, just really kind of as the interview went along, it seemed like she, I, I don't know if she just got knocked off her game or something like that, but she, she seemed to not have um, the, uh, uh, the, the extemporaneous kind of thought to, yeah. uh, that, that was going on. And, you know, there, there were a couple of times where she said, you know, I'll get back to you on that. And it's like, well, it's a podcast. We're recording right now. It's <laughs> You're not, not getting back to us on it. It's not how this works. Yeah. I, I think people who listen to it will hear those, those gaps. I do agree with you on certain topics. She was, she was quite adept at and she had good answers. She knew what she was talking about. She owned the material. Clearly, as a candidate, she understands a lot of the challenges Cleveland faces. Those those three are all published today. Uh, the Bashir Jones episode will publish sometime this afternoon. Um, that one was also a little disappointing because while he is a very polished speaker, he doesn't say a whole lot. Yeah, there wasn't, it did leave a little want for, you know, some kind of uh, concrete plan. Um, he definitely, I, I think he had more like actual plan policy points than, you know, like what we were talking about with Zach Reed, right? Um, but he did rely on kind of the uh, the oration part of it, the soapbox part of it, so to speak. And I, I think one thing that that podcast is probably going to show or that interview is going to show is that on the stump, I think he is, you know, he has an argument for being the best candidate as far as, you know, speaking at an engagement or anything like that and really kind of getting people excited. You can see how people would really 
um, you know, latch on to well, somebody with that skill. But when we start asking again about the nitty gritty, we don't yeah, really get it. There, you didn't get specific. Look, he he used the tricks. Like at one point, he started to say. I don't think there's anything wrong in saying that I have, I need to learn something. And it's like, well, nobody said there was anything wrong with it. He, he, he would pose it as, as an opposition to something we said that we didn't say. It's one of the, it's an orator's trick. And he did a bunch of that. But again, as soon as you got into the specifics, it, it was, well, I'll have to, we'll have to come up with a plan for that. I'll have to figure it out. And uh, it, I mean, I just didn't think there was much depth there. Uh, next, uh, on Wednesday, we'll, we'll publish the Justin Bibb interview. What did you think of that one? I thought he did pretty strong, all things considered for not having, you know, any, you know, government experience, frankly, he, he did come prepared, you know, there were some, you know, slight platitudes in there, I thought, but generally speaking, every one thing that I liked about that interview is because maybe it was just because of the interim interviews or whatever, but, you know, we were able, because he came with a plan, we were able to ask uh, even, I, I think, even better follow-ups, right? And yeah. really get into, you know, some of the um, minutiae of things. Yeah. And the minutiae is important when you're talking about, you know, running an entire city. You know, there were times where, yeah, maybe it was kind of this, you know, this, this broad sentiment, but he, you know, once, once we did ask the follow-up, he was able to he go was on, he, he was on and, top of it. He had the facts at hand. He had yeah. studied it. I mean, he, um, he was as prepared as anybody. And, he, and when we threw him a few of the hard questions, he rose to the challenge. He knew they were coming, but, um, he did a nice job. When we asked about his inexperience, his answer is, well, nobody in this race has experience governing a city coming out of a pandemic, which is a good, it's a good line, right? You know, it's a way to deal with it. The, the last one uh, is Dennis Kucinich. That'll publish Thursday. And I should say, with both Bashir Jones and Dennis Kucinich, there were some sound issues. Uh, for some reason, there was a horrible whistling almost in the Justin Bibb interview that we had to do some sound engineering, so it's a little muddy. And then, I don't know what, it sounded like Dennis was cracking homage or something. <laughs> so there's some crackling noises. What did you think of the Dennis Kucinich interview? It's the the dregs of uh, everybody recording from home still. But, uh, you know, Dennis, I will say in hindsight, I, I think kind of um, almost uh, how do I want to put this? Uh, I think that I went into it thinking that we were going to get a a pretty just, just a campaign speech. Right. That Dennis was going, you know, Dennis has made a career off of kind of being a good order, right? It's not like he doesn't necessarily have a plan. He's just very good at kind of sticking to a talking point, really driving that point home. And I will say that, you know, we went into that interview thing, at least I did, went into that interview thinking, okay, we're just kind of going to get, you know, the uh, the surface level. And, you know, some of that is true, right? Some of it we did, I think, only get really the surface level uh, diagnosis of uh, the problem or the plan. Yeah. I mean, he look, wants to do. And for example, when he's talking about hiring the 400 police and we come back and say, look, Cleveland's had a tight budget for most of the last 20 years, 400 police would add tens of millions of dollars each year to it. It's not sustainable. How would you pay for it? And he says, well, when I came into office the first time I found 18, I reduced the budget by 18% because I found fraud and waste. Oh, well, <laughs> okay. That was 40 to 44 years ago. Have you looked in this budget for fraud and waste? Because we all know Cleveland's been running pretty lean just to get through. Detroit went bankrupt in the time that Frank Jackson was keeping the, the trash trucks running. And so I, I, I didn't feel like 
you got fulfilling answers. I felt like you got the patronizing answers. Can There's, I jump in on it with a question Tassi. for you guys? On the on the issue of hiring more police, you know, the candidate, some Dennis Kucinich, I think Sandra Williams, maybe Zach Reed, they're all in on hiring more cops, especially Kucinich, like you said, Chris. You know, he basically told the editorial board that the city was irresponsible to not drain its reserves this past right. year to hire more police. And and many of these candidates are opposed to the ballot initiative to increase civilian oversight of the department. All of that strikes me as a somewhat risky campaign position, given how polarizing this issue is. I mean, there is a considerable sector of the population who believe the police department is an occupying force in the neighborhoods that not much has improved since the consent decree was enacted and that policing really needs to be redesigned entirely before we should invest more heavily in them. Then, of course, of course, there are others who absolutely would get behind a plan to pump money into that department. Do you guys get the sense that these candidates are hedging their bets on which of these polarized yeah. groups are going to turn out to vote? Yeah. Is that what I mean, this is about? Yeah, I, I very much that, so. Yeah. There, there's a group that thinks that telling people we're going to hire a bunch more cops will work. I think that's mainly a West Side ploy. And then there are candidates that know that a lot of voters in the city are, do, think of the police exactly as you say. That's why I think Justin Bibb coming back saying, look, we have more cops per capita than the rest of the cities in Ohio. We just don't deploy them very well. Mm-hmm. He's done the mm-hmm. research. And, and I, you know, he he has a thoughtful approach to how how he would hit it. So, uh, it, I mean, they, you really you get some differences. And I don't, Jane Cahoon, you've listened to at least one of these. What did you think of the format? Did you feel like it was revealing? Yeah. Yeah. And I like how you guys, you know, kept trying to pin them down. The, the The first one I listened to was was Zach Reed, though, of course. And as you said, it was it was a little frustrating to it was a lot you frustrating. guys, you know, <laughs> ask for specifics and him just, you know, uh, as you said, orating, you know, I, so. I was I did not expect that. I, you know, I know he's a little bit full of bluster, but I thought he spent 16 years in city council. I thought he would have specifics. And the only specific he has is on policing. He would bring in violence interrupters. He's been talking about it for a long time. But even when you go beyond that, there's not a whole lot of there, there. It's it's a lot. Yeah, I, I agree. With you. It was that one was for me was the most uh, frustrating of the, the six. Check them out. They're special episodes. We'll finish publishing them on Thursday. They'll be there for the rest of the campaign. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How have low-income Ohioans been hurt more than other people by the coronavirus pandemic? Leila Tassi, I don't think this is going to surprise anybody, but it's been quantified a bit. And it's true, low-income Ohioans have been hurt more. Right, right. The the Ohio Association of Community Action Agencies released this report that found that low-income Ohioans were the first to lose their jobs or see their hours or wages reduced after COVID hit. That, of course, sets off a death spiral of other negative impacts like food shortages and housing insecurity. The study draws upon a census survey that shows twice as many low-income Ohio households fell behind rent payments in January 2021 as they did in April 2020 when the pandemic was still in its infancy. If it weren't for the federal eviction moratorium, which President Joe Biden just extended, you know, who knows how many people would be homeless right now. The authors of this report also noted how important Ohio's expansion of Medicaid was to saving lives during the pandemic. The program was expanded several years ago to include about half a million lower income residents and continuous enrollees were almost four times more likely to say that their financial situation had improved since they began receiving those benefits. This report also contemplates 
the growth in the number of people who experienced what's known as episodic poverty, which means that they didn't have enough money available to live above the poverty level for three months if their income dried up. It's difficult to measure that and, and account for it, but but social service agencies report serving many, many people who had never before reached out for assistance with food or housing needs. So an interesting look at at what we, at, like you said, we we knew a lot of this to be true, but uh, but you know now it's been it's been uh, quantified. The Medicaid news was good though. I mean the the in- expansion of Medicaid did they what what how many lives did they did they think it saved a hundred thousand? Oh or something? yeah, so, yeah. I I looked at that figure though. It, it was between like twenty fourteen and twenty seventeen. Um, so oh. and, you know that that figure kind of came from a you know a liberal think tank. So I you know oh, okay. didn't include it in my roundup of the story because I was like, well, well okay. you know. So no good and, news. And there. how do they know that for? <laughs> I mean, okay. No, but yeah. I mean, health healthcare for 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 people is good. So. So I, of course, uh, you know, of course, if you have access to, to healthcare, you're, you're much better off. So I have no doubt that those, that those people were served by that program. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Let's do one more. Why do public health experts say the necessity of the new Ohio law, letting doctors and nurses refuse to treat people based on moral, ethical, and religious beliefs is not there. Jane Coon, we talked about this law when it passed as if it meant something but the the medical experts are saying it has no meaning. It's just confusing people. Yeah, they basically say it's not necessary. And, and that's because the American Medical Association and a lot of hospital systems already give caregivers the right, like in non-emergency situations, to decline to provide care to a patient under you know, certain limited circumstances, you know, for these moral and ethical and religious reasons. Just for background real quick, this is the so-called conscience provision that was in the recent two-year budget bill that Governor Mike DeWine signed into law. He could have vetoed that section, but chose not to. It, it recognizes the authority of a medical practitioner, healthcare institution, or healthcare payer to decline to perform, participate in, or pay for any healthcare service that violates the practitioner's, um, you know, moral, ethical, or religious beliefs. But the people that Julie Washington talked to say that those kinds of provisions are are longstanding, and this was a solution in search of a problem, didn't need to be codified. And as you said, it's just, it's poorly written, overly broad, and just confuses people. And I guess one thing I'm still confused about is, like, what about, I mean, they talk about, like, well, you can't, you know, federal policy, for instance, prohibits refusing to treat somebody in an emergency situation. But what's an emergency situation? I mean, like a life-threatening situation might be obvious, but, you know, what about a situation where somebody is really in serious pain and suffering and, you know, what, I just don't understand that, that whole thing. But in any event, the Ohio's medical associations are lobbying in Columbus to try to introduce new legislation to just correct this and, and, and try to let, you know, their members urge state representatives to, you know, be aware of their objections to it. Okay. I doubt they'll have much success there, but we'll see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it for a Tuesday. Thanks, Seth. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Jane. Seth will be back tomorrow to talk some more about politics in the state of Ohio. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.